Ready? Hey! <laughs> what? Why did you start laughing? <laughs> because we didn't go at the same time. Well, to me, we did. Was I behind really? you? Uh, yeah, there was a, a gap. Oh, well, I have it's a laugh. hard on Zoom. Hey! <laughs> Welcome to urban planning. Wait, I thought we were saying at the same time. No? No, I thought we, <laughs> we can if you want to. <laughs> this is so this, this is, is gonna be this is gonna be the beginning <laughs> yeah this is gonna be yeah yes okay so it's just hey unison. okay then i'll say it by myself if you want yeah so welcome to and then urban, urban planning, planning is it's not boring boring okay hey. hey welcome to urban planning is not boring i'm sam and I'm Nat. We want to welcome Hassan Ikrada from the San Diego Association of Governments, otherwise known as SANDAG. And so we would love if you could start out by just giving us a quick summary of your background, your education, and your career thus far. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and good to be with both of you, Natalie and Sam. Um, so again, my name is Hassan Ikrat. I'm the CEO of Sandex, San Diego Association of Governments. Before that, for 10 years, I was the CEO of SCAG in, in Los Angeles area. Uh, I did my uh, master's degree in, in civil engineering at UCLA, and then my PhD work at USC in urban planning. I've been in uh, in urban planning field, uh, focusing on transportation for the last three decades. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor for six years at uh, Cal State Northridge, senior fellow at UCLA, and um, try to stay involved with academia as much as uh, as my time allows. So it's good to be with both of you, and I'm all yours. Ask away. Okay. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah. So um, actually, just uh, really quickly to interject. Um, for those of you who maybe heard that Hassani Krada sounds like a familiar name, it's because he is not just Hassani Krada, but he is also Baba. He is my dad. <laughs> and so um, he's our special first feature on the podcast. And then I'll I'll send it back to Sam so she can ask her next question. Sure. Yeah, we would love to kind of hear what Sandag is and what you all do in the San Diego region. So uh, briefly, Sandag is uh, what's called a metropolitan planning organization for the San Diego region, for the one county. And that uh, 3.3 million people, 4,000 square miles. Uh, Sandag is, is really not only the planning agency, but also uh, the implementing agency that we not only plan, design, and environmentally clear projects, but we build them. And in the last decade, Sandag got involved in housing because a linkages between transportation and land use is a must if you want to plan a region right. So um, some of the work um, we've been doing at least in the last three and a half years since I came here uh, is, is focuses very much on enhancing choices for commuters. Uh, we are car centric in California and in the U.S. We have been for many, many decades. Um, and we found ourselves uh, with all these uh, tremendous challenges, congestion, air pollution, uh, 
greenhouse gas emissions, climate change issues, social justice and social equity issues. Uh, so we try to uh, at Sandac to actually deal with transportation in a different way. One, linking it to land use, and two, making sure that we overcome the sins of the past that transportation did in dividing communities, making sure that especially low-income and minorities have access, decent access to transportation, because that access means access to jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So San Diego, San Diego really uh, does well for the region when it comes uh, to, to the urban form slash transportation and, and, and takes into account a lot of uh, social justice issues that has been ignored in the past. Thank you for that uh, summary. That was really great. And just to segue into kind of getting the discussion going, you know, you had mentioned transportation and how focused you are on transportation. And actually the other day in the car on our way to lunch, you were talking to me about your kind of imagination for the future of transportation. And this country has gone through a roller coaster of changes regarding transit and transportation in general. And now we have become a country that only has one viable mode of transit, which is the car. Um, so can you share what you have learned throughout your career about the problems with an auto-centric nation? And then can you touch upon what your view is for what the future of transportation is gonna look like? Well, this is um, really a great question that many researchers are trying to tackle and, and look first, not only at the history, but how do we became a car-centric society. So uh, let's take the Los Angeles area where you are. Um, the red cars used to be the mode uh, uh, in Southern California. The red cars, you know, the, the light rail trolleys. And, um, you know, uh, automobile companies and tire companies and oil companies want to sell their product. So they made sure that all this real estate of the red cars are there uh, to accommodate a different mode to sell their product. So um, in Los Angeles, actually, used to be um, in a recent past, you know, in the, in the 1940s, 50s, uh, up to 60s, used to be. Uh, and uh, a mode uh, of transit that people were able to go from San Bernardino to LA to everywhere in LA. That's no longer the case. That that system was totally gone. Uh, was replaced by the, like in in the country in general, but especially in California, what we call the interstate system. Everything was developed and designed around the car, and and we definitely design our lives around the car not only in California, especially in California, but in the country. And so uh, when President Eisenhower decided to build the interstate system, and by the way, which is the greatest investment in the history of mankind, probably, uh, with, the, with the thousands of miles. At the time, the, the, the two justifications for the interstate system were national defense and commerce. And that is how President Eisenhower got it through Congress. And who would say no? to, uh, you know, if, if somebody attack us to be able to connect the states and who would would say no to making sure trucks find their ways uh, into every state through the interstate system. So that's how the interstate system was born. And the rest is history. Pretty much everything we did ever since was uh, expanding the network, making it uh, 
more viable uh, and therefore every house we build every commercial building we build was designed based on what these streets and highways and, and freeways are um, fast forward um, we didn't realize that back then that we ran out out of capacity very quickly and we start seeing tremendous congestion uh, we start seeing um, people getting sick from air pollution. Um, frankly, in the 1960s, you couldn't see the mountains if you lived in LA. The, the air was so bad. And as you know, transportation is almost half, of the, it counts for half of the emissions. Uh, and so we start dealing with these cells in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We try to say, wait a minute. Um, it's not so glamorous to just keep building something that pollute, create congestion, uh, create uh, uh, a lot of urban ills for, for many communities. And in the last four or five decades, we actually, everything we did is trying to deal with the externalities of the car, but at the same time trying to say, well, can we provide a different way to get around? And we found out so far that it's really difficult because you have an urban form that's already established. It's really, unless you bulldoze everything and start over again, it's hard to do planning. Nevertheless, it's not impossible. And I think in the last decade, uh, we, we we also try to see start to see that technology is playing a tremendous role in how we move around. You know, uh, there were no Uber and Lyft before 1995. Okay, neither of you were born then, but um, you know, you you born in, in a time when Uber and Lyft is there, but wasn't there in the recent future. I you know I I traveled. Um, was working before 1995, and there is only the taxi cabs. And uh, so technology, uh, app-operated um, Uber and Lyft, has come into the market. And transportation has focused mainly on, it is still a car. I mean, instead of us driving in our own car, we now are driven by somebody. And in some cities like San Francisco, actually Uber and Lyft added to the congestion and added to the urban ills of transportation. So the question is, can we provide choices that are not car dependent, giving the urban form we design? And the answer is yes, if we're smart in deploying technology, if we're smart in pricing the system right, which is politically unpopular, uh, if we're smart actually about building the kind of development that lend itself to at least providing choices for some of us. As you know, transit ridership pre-COVID was declining. And when I was in Los Angeles working with uh, Phil Washington, we were wondering why is transit ridership declining in Los Angeles, even though we're investing tens of billions of dollars in the transit system? And we work with UCLA, the researcher from UCLA and Berkeley, USC, and in a study that done uh, by Mike Minden and Brian Taylor, they actually found the smoking gun. And that is between 2000 and 2015, Southern California added 2.5 million people, but they added 2.8 million cars. 
with the prime lending. And, you know, buying a car for some families is meaning they're moving up in status. So especially low income when they're the mostly the transit riders. So now they have an access to a car and they no longer ride transit. And the reason they no longer ride transit because transit is not convenient. We really never designed transit to compete with the car. A trip that takes 20 minutes and the car takes two hours in transit. So that made us think, if you truly want people to use transit, make it compatible with the automobile. Make it compete in time and convenience and safety. Most stations, uh, transit stations, don't have amenities like bathrooms. Uh, They're not safe, especially for uh, women. Women didn't feel safe riding transit. So if we truly want to compete with the automobile and transit, we have to make transit as convenient, if not more convenient. And the only way to do that, I believe, is not just focusing on fixed guideway transit, the big buses and trains, but focusing on what we call flexible fleet. Flexible fleet is an app-operated public transportation that is, before you leave your home, you use an app, you push a button, you say, I want to go to USC today from San Bernardino. And that app should provide you choices should price them for you. You should pay before you leave your home and then you should make less choices. Right now, if you have that app, it will have two choices. The the commuter rail system, the Metrolink system, and the car. And each one takes time. Each one has a cost. But if you use the commuter rail system, you have to figure out how you're going to get to the station and how you get from your last station to your destination. So the first and last mile issue. Therefore, I don't think fixed guideway transit is going to work everywhere. It's going to work for places where it's density. And now after COVID, I don't think the commuter trip is going to come back the way it was ever. I think most people will uh, prefer to drive. Therefore, all of the planning we did to put transit was, I believe, wasn't the right planning. I think right now we need to figure out how we provide public transportation that's app-operated, that's compatible with the automobile, combine that with the existing fixed guideway system, combine that with some development of housing and commercial so we can have the density to support these systems. And short of that, they were just, uh, you know, doing a disservice to the field of planning, frankly. And finally, if you don't price that system, recently in, in a Time Magazine interview, I, I made this statement. Bad pricing kills good planning. I don't care how good your plan is. If you don't price the system right, it will never work. Yeah. And pricing is a perception. So if you take the Metrolink and you need to pay $15 for round trip, in your head, oh my gosh, $15 when gas was cheaper, I could fill a half a tank. And so the perception, you don't you don't think about the other cost of driving. Right. Uh, you don't think of insurance and maintenance and all that. So uh, price the system right. And so people push back, say, well, you know, we're subsidizing transit, and which we are. But frankly, we're subsidizing the automobile 10 times over. If I make you to pay the full cost of driving, you probably think it twice before you drive if you have a, a good choice. Yeah. Uh, so the future, uh, Natalie, like you and I talked, would lend itself to a different public transportation system that's app-operated, that's convenient, that actually makes 
people, especially your generation, would say, yeah, that's that's a real option for me. And instead of me owning two cars, maybe I can live up with owning a car or share a car. As you know, right now in Europe, one of the most spreading businesses in transportation is mobility services, where companies actually would treat transportation as a utility, like as electricity or water. You pay a big price, and if you want to travel more, you pay more, and that service is available to you at any time. That's a very mobility service, meaning that you don't have to own a car to get to your destination. So I believe the future is going to be different. I, I hope you, you're just beginning, going to embrace that future because just keep fighting the car is not going to solve the problem. So you had made a couple of really big statements, and one of them was how you really challenged the way that the, the transit system, transit network was was essentially built and and planned and created. Um, and do you think you could dive a little bit deeper into sure. why you believe that that was poor planning? Sure. Uh, I, I can tell you that in San Diego, for example, we just... Uh, and I'm proud of this project. I just delivered the largest infrastructure project in San Diego's history called the Midcoast, 11 miles of light rail that now guarantees a ride from the border with Mexico all the way to UCSD, University of California in San Diego. A one-seat ride. That system we just delivered $2.17 billion. Uh, it's very convenient has nine stations. Unfortunately, that system goes by the beach, not to the beach. So it stops two miles short of the beach. And you might wanna ask me why. Because we find it easy not to fight the right of way issues or not to go underground because it costs too much. And we said, Mm -hmm. okay, let's go to the easiest route possible. Unfortunately, this is how we design transit. An old railroad is there. Let us put a commuter rail system, not get it where people live and work. Got it. Like like the commuter rail, the Metrolink system goes on the 10 freeway some of the ways, right? How many people live and work on the 10 freeway, right? Yeah. You need to get transit to go where people live and where people work. And we haven't done that because, frankly, let me give you some history. So in the 80s, when when Metro put sales tax for the voters, mm-hmm. uh, major A and C, mm-hmm. um, and at the time it was 50 percent to pass, 50 plus one. Uh, most people, and you're gonna when you take Giuliani to class, they're gonna teach you about that. Most people in in Los Angeles voted. Majority of people voted to pay tax to tax themselves to build transit. And in in an opinion survey, asking people, well, are you gonna use transit? Why did you vote yes for that? So no, no, no. I voted yes because I want people to get out of my way so I can drive faster. Got it. The point here is we never really thought of transit as a, a competitive mode with the automobile. It just it just felt good. Let us do it. We did it. We got two, three, maybe 5% um, mode share, and we started declining in the 90s and the 2000s uh, because we never built it having in mind origin, destination, where it should go, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would hope any future transit, and, and I made it very clear to my board in San Diego that any future 
fixed guideway transit is going to have to go underground, above ground, and it's going to cost much more, but it's going to have to be done right. Otherwise, don't waste your money. Right now, most of our buses go with one or two people in them. Yeah. So that's a waste of public goods. Uh, and that's why I think flexible fleet, the future of technology using flexible fleet is, is much more uh, amenable to future public transportation. Yeah. And you had kind of mentioned also something within um, the realm of shared mobility. Can you kind of go into that? Well, you know, sh- shared mobility, uh, uh, we call it, and, and this is really a, a fancy name for um, like uh, a shared electric driveless mode of transportation is going to have to be the future. And now you told me yesterday, well, people culturally don't like, they like their privacy. They want to be in their car and put their right music and they don't want to share it with anybody else. They don't want to hear somebody else's in their car, etc. And I told you, I agree. Except when you start charging people the real cost of driving, they might be willing to share. Culturally, we, we value our privacy, and that's okay. I mean, we, we right. live in a democracy. Having said that, we also shouldn't take for granted that this we're providing public goods for people to get from A to B or people to, to reach their destination. And by the way, the, this um, government is in the business of not making money but providing public goods. And therefore, yeah, we have to be concerned about privacy and we have we have to make it convenient for you if you decide to share a ride. But we also, at the end of the day, we're not targeting 100%. Most of us will continue to drive. But if we go from the 5% today mode split to a 10, 15%, that will add capacity to the transportation system, reduce greenhouse gas emission, reduce pollution, maybe, maybe get rid of urban else. A shared mobility, in the future, it is is going to be a mobility as a service, not necessarily by owning a car, but by having an access to a, a mode that gets you to your destination. Right. I just learned so much. <laughs> that was crazy. You know everything. Um, so. I guess I'm just like thinking about um, like what sticks in my head is like the Olympics are coming to LA in 2028. And so a lot of what the County and the city of LA is pushing towards is like this expansion of transit. Mm -hmm. I know Metro has the like next gen 28 by 2028. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like curious, like your thoughts on that, because it seems like, I mean, you're kind of saying that that might not be the best move forward in general. And I'm just curious, like if a big event like that, where you kind of can guess people are going to be going from the airport to right. these destinations, right. but it, for long-term yeah. feasibility of having these yeah. static so, lines. Yeah, Sam, so special events are interesting things. Uh, in 1984, which is the year I came uh, to the U.S., I came to UCLA, we had an Olympic in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And actually, traffic hasn't been better except during those Olympics. Why? <laughs> because they were a very tremendous public outreach campaign to people. Please stay, stay home if you have to. Please carpool. Please take mm-hmm. transit. And guess what? Los Angeles seen a free flow traffic for 14 days during the Olympics. 
people responded. I think the if you're a tourist or or somebody coming from outside, mm-hmm. you know, it would be wonderful to find the people mover in at LAX, which I proud of worked hard on when I was at, at Skag uh, and getting you to the Crenshaw um, line, Metro line. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. But when the Olympic is over, would that system attract the masses that we hope it attracts? Mm-hmm. Yet to be seen. And short of pricing the system, I don't think so. If we price the system, maybe. That's why I think I appreciate what Phil Washington and Stephanie Wigan is trying to do at Metro, at look at pricing strategies everywhere in the county, because we're investing tens of billions of dollars in these systems. And I think, frankly, one of the reasons the the transit ridership declined is because we didn't have enough connectivity. Now, with the building they're doing, we'll have better connectivity. If we add pricing to that, I think we might get a decent share. Uh, but the Olympic, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I think the Olympic, we're going to see better traffic than than today, frankly, because people respond uh, to this. And also, if you're coming from outside the country, because when you go to Europe, you don't even think of renting a car. Mm-hmm. You know, you get from your airplane in the terminal, you get into a train. That, that is the kind of systems we need here. Yeah. Um, I'm here in San Diego right now. Our transit system go by the airport. You can wave. Uh, <laughs> people in the airport, but you don't go into the airport. We're trying to get it into the airport. Yeah, I think that really is. So, so Sam, Sam, your point is well taken. I think I, I am for the investment we're doing in, in LA, but that investment has to be combined with public policy that makes uh, makes it amenable to work. Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting perspective because LA Metro really at work, all we're hearing is about the Olympics and it's, you know, already there's preparation and there's, there's planning going towards that. And it's very much focused on that. Um, And I've noticed that just being there. So it's a really interesting perspective and a great question, Sam. Um, And so dad, I just want to say that we're so grateful to have had you here on the podcast and, you know, we would love to invite you with the opportunity to shout out an organization um, that's related to the field of urban planning that you would really want more people to know about um, or want more people to support. And and then we'll go ahead and, and say our goodbyes. Thank you. And it's an honor to be with both of you. Um, I, there's an organization called FACTS. Um, uh, and uh, this organization is actually provides specialized transportation for seniors, uh, disabled citizens. Um, and we send that contribute to the funding of that. I think let's put it this way. The, some of the people that the facts serve would have no other choice to get to their doctor or mm-hmm. get to, uh, you know, their, their community center uh, to enjoy life. So while they are very small, they carry small ridership, but these are the kind of organization that must exist, especially because of the way we design our lives around the car. And, and some people denying the, deny, is denied the opportunity to have access to basic things like going to the doctor. So I'm gonna give a shout out to Facts uh, in San Diego for, for doing great work. Thank you. And then um, really quickly, I just kind of want your 
kind of concluding thoughts on this topic of conversation and the discussion around the the future of transportation, if you had, you know, just a couple of last words to say, what what would they be? Sure. First of all, it's really good to be with both of you. Uh, I uh, I uh, met Sam finally after hearing so many <laughs> things about her. And uh, you live, I live with you, so well, I see you every weekend. <laughs> but, but my 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 advice to you as as uh, as you know, beginning planners, and I uh, had the benefit of hearing your podcast. I actually enjoyed listening to you. Is this, um, and I say this with all the sincerity you're uh, you know the the world is yours i mean you have an opportunity to change the world uh, and you change the world by doing simple things sometimes in this field of transportation pay attention to technology technology is going to solve many things if you don't listen to the cynics um you know every major investment in in our country had cynics. I mean, the BART in San Francisco and, and, and Sam, you, you live in the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1970s, if you read the headlines of the newspaper, uh, the cynics were saying, oh, my God, you're pouring money into the ground. Why do this? I couldn't imagine San Francisco without BART. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sky is the limit. You should think of creative ideas of how to make transportation system. Uh, but make sure it is the future transportation system. You don't need to run a big bus to carry many people you can run a shuttle that is app-operated, that's convenient, and, and carry as many people. The criticism we get in many urban areas, especially in San Diego, is we're running big buses with empty uh, seats. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what a waste of public good. Uh, so my concluding thoughts to you, watch out for transportation. We're not going to have – I was um, had an interview earlier today about driveless cars. Would we have stage five driverless cars anytime soon? And my answer is no, not in the next maybe five decades. A fully automated driverless cars. Why? The urban form is not ready. We don't have the care. Yeah. Our streets are not built for it. Is the technology there? Of course. But is public policy there uh, to, to have this? No, we're, we're far away from it. Yeah. I know. People in the 2000s, they say, well, in 2020, we're going to have all driverless cars. Uh, no, think again. So technology is going to be there. But it's is the question is, is it going to be disruptive technology like the cell phone? Or is it going to be gradual? Yeah. And, and, and the answer to that is difficult to predict. But, you know, uh, in nine, I give you just one, one example. In 1985, AT&T hired a consulting firm, McKenzie because they were worried about their business of landlines. They said, can you tell us what would the cell phone use be in 2000? Remember now we're in 85, they wanted to forecast. And McKenzie is a very good, repeatable consulting firm came back and they said, oh, don't worry about it. They're gonna be 900,000 cell phone users. Now my dog could have done a better forecast. There were hundreds of millions, <laughs> hundreds of millions of, of one users in 2000. That was disrupted. And all of a sudden, everybody has a cell phone. Is transportation going to go that way? I don't know, but I, I I think you shouldn't put it out of reality. That's still possible. That like Uber and Lyft came all of a sudden and became replacing the taxi cab, something might happen. So watch out for that disruption in, in, in transportation. Well, that could happen. Yeah. yeah. 
This was great. Thank you so much. This was amazing. (laughs) I like really learned so much just from listening to you and hearing your experience and your knowledge. And it was really incredible. I I would hope to come to one of your classes and teach you a couple of things. I would would love that. I would absolutely (laughs) love that. I I did most most classes that Barnett and Giuliano, I, I did this lecture for them. So I might come to, uh, you're taking Giuliano's next, next semester, right? Yeah. I have Giuliano next semester. I don't know if Sam is in that class. I'm not, but she was my boss. Cause I used yeah. to work at Metrans. So oh, yeah? I know her. Yeah. She's great. <laughs> yeah. All right, I love thank, thank you for, for having me. Uh, good luck to you. And I'm really proud of you, both of you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.